All right, we left off last week in chapter 4, in verse number 5. So just a quick recap. I think, again, most of you guys have been following, so I don't need to do too much, but, and we'll catch a little bit here in the study tonight, but um, Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, and Esther are post-exilic books. They happen after the book of Daniel. Daniel um, was led into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem um, in three waves. In the third wave, um, he completely destroyed the temple, the walls, the city of Jerusalem. And then after 70 years of captivity, um, many of the Jews made homes. They settled in Babylon, and they were given um, a decree by a, a, a pagan king by the name of Cyrus to go back and begin rebuilding. They went back in waves and what we call Aliyah, very similar to what happened in May 14th, after May 14, 1948, as the Jews began to gather the Jews from around the world um, back to Israel, to their homeland, and another wave of Aliyah. And so they went back in waves. The first wave was led by Zerubbabel in our study here, and he went back and he began to rebuild the temple. And then um, we'll get to next uh, week as we transition here in the book of Ezra to studying and focusing on this character who this book is named after, the author of the book, Ezra, who um, was the high priest or the priest at the time who was the pastor, the teacher, was gifted in the ministry of the gospel and the ministry of the word of God. And so then Ezra is going to reinstitute temple worship, practices, services, sacrifices, all those things um, after Zerubbabel is kind of in charge of the the, the the building side of the house. And then as we get to Nehemiah, it's another wave of Aliyah or, or leaving Babylon, going back to Jerusalem under a different um, king as the kings will change. We have a couple gaps here we'll get tonight, a 15-year gap um, between chapters 5 and 6. And then we'll see a 60-year gap between chapters 6 and 7. And that's where the, the story of Esther takes place. And Esther and Haman... And the Persian king that, that Esther saves the Jews from happens in that gap between um, Zerubbabel and Ezra going back to rebuild the temple. And then um, later, 60 years later, when Nehemiah, we're going to read that next, Nehemiah is going to go back and rebuild the walls. The, the, the decree that is mentioned in Daniel chapter 9 that marks the time frame for, for Messiah, the prince to be cut off in that famous prophecy comes in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 4, and the king is Artaxerxes Longimanus who gives that decree. There's four kind of decrees that will get through Ezra and Nehemiah, Esther um, kind of coupled in the middle there. Uh, you'll have some reading assignments when you leave tonight, and I'll just tell them to you, we'll get to it, but Haggai and um, Zechariah were written specifically for this time frame, and they give reference, we'll see them in there today. So if you want some context for, for Ezra, where you are, at least Haggai, it's only two chapters. It's a great read. Um, Zechariah is 12 chapters or 14 chapters, and it's a little more difficult just to track what's going on. But it's these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, who were contemporary with Ezra and where we are right now today in the, in the scriptures when they wrote. Um, Haggai specifically, the entire book of Haggai is his message to the people of Israel as they hit a, a, a block in building the house of the Lord as they went back. Now, to catch us up again quickly from last week, you guys remember what the first thing that they built when they got back? The altar, very good. They built the altar, 
and there was no walls, and again, it would have been strange. You would have seen it from far off because the burnt offerings would be offered there, the sacrifices, you'd see the smoke rising up. But we talked about being backsliding, and, and we talked about that, that the first thing that has to happen as you come back to the Lord is to the altar, is to Jesus. And Jesus is, is the altar. It's the center of, of our relationship and who we are. So when we come back, we come to Jesus, we get things right with Jesus, we have... Um, communion type of, of, of repentance and getting our hearts right, examining. So they came back, they built the altar, and then where we left off last week, the Samaritans showed up. And I showed you some pictures of the Samaritans last week and who they are. They're, they're from the, the ten northern tribes of Israel. And so the, the ten northern tribes were taken off into captivity before the two southern tribes went into Babylon for 70 years. The ten northern tribes were taken into Assyrian um, by the Assyrians into captivity. And they went off first because the, the ten northern tribes in Israel's history, they never had a good king. They careened off into um, idol worship and idolatry long before the, it hit the southern tribes. The southern um, part of Israel had multiple um, good kings and good seasons. The temple and, and Jerusalem was in the south. And then, the, and then there became kind of a dispute between the northern ten tribes and the southern tribes. And so what happened was, and again, it was explained last week with the Samaritans, um, they were a, a half-breed of Jews because the Assyrians handled the captivity much different than the Babylonians, and they, um, they acclimated, they made them marry and, um, Assyrians and, and try to introduce Assyrian culture. And, and so the, the Samaritans were half-breeds, half-Jews, half-Syrians, and the Jews wouldn't recognize them. And the Jews wouldn't allow them to worship in Jerusalem and do those things. So they rather what they did was they came up with this kind of strange fire worship, and they said, well, then we're just going to create our own temple and our own system of worship on Mount Gerizim. And that's why, if you remember, right, in um, John chapter 4, when Jesus must needs go through Samaria, we talked about that last week, the Jews were like, his, the disciples were tripping out because it was, you would need to go through Samaria as you traveled through Israel into the Galilee, but um, the Jews always went around, and Jesus would have always went around. Well, this particular day, he was going to go through, and they're like, what are you going through for him? We never go through. Well, when he got there, remember the woman at the well? And she's like, we Samaritans and you Jews, why? You have no dealings with us and, and a woman at that. You know, and then Jesus begins to minister to her. And, and that was, and to this day, the Samaritans are there in Israel, a small group. Um, I don't know what they number, but they're, they're, they got a lot of problems over the years because the, the culture has been really tight and not a lot of fresh blood. And so um, the Samaritans are still there. They were there at the day of Jesus. Well, they show up here in our story. And they say, we want to re-help you guys rebuild. But really, they had a heart. They were, they were in competition. They wanted to add, again, strange fire to the worship and the institute. And so at, at first, when you read it, you're like, why would they reject these folks that want to come? And they're Jews, they're, they're, they're Samaritans, and they're, you know, from the ten northern tribes. That's where, if you've ever heard, this kind of parenthesis, sorry, but if you've ever heard of the lost ten tribes of Israel, the lost tribes of Israel, that's where the idea comes from. Again, it's not in your Bible. It's not true. There's never been ten lost tribes. God's never lost anything, okay? He's never lost his car keys or the cure to cancer or anything else, okay? And he's definitely never lost the ten tribes. So that idea is, is, is non-biblical. It's not accurate. There's no lost tribes. But that's where the idea came from, was these ten tribes that assimilated into Assyrian cultures and things and, and became these, these half-breeds, that in that they were, they were lost tribes. But there's never been a lost tribe. God knows where they are. In the book of Revelation, he's going to raise up 144,000 Jewish evangelists, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. He knows exactly who they are and where they are. And so the Assyrians come. They say, we want to help. And then they say, um, sorry, we, we, you know, we're not going to allow you guys. We, 
they, because again, they were going to offer it. And then verse 4, I think it's where we left off last week in this idea. It says, look at verse chapter 4, verse 4. It says, then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah, and they troubled them in the building. This is the same group that just showed up and said, hey, we want to help. And they said, no, you can't help. So immediately their hearts turned, and they show their true colors. And I think the example I gave was some of the benevolence we do at the church, and somebody calls and asks money or something, and if we walk them through, and if I tell them no, then they start cussing me out. And yeah, you churches and you people, you know, the problems of the world, and all these things they'll say to me when I, if I tell them no. Um, and again, it's, it was showing their true heart. They always had that heart. They hated the church. They, you know, they, from the beginning, it's not like they, they decided to hate the church when I told them that we wouldn't help them. And by the way, we do help a ton of folks. And the Bible says that we're responsible as a church for the house of God's work. And, and so, you know, it's hard because I, I don't necessarily tell people, oh, no, you don't come to our church or you're not a part of our church, so I'm not helping you. That's not the case. We'll help people that don't come. But the responsibility, the biblical responsibility that we have is first to the house of God. And so the reality is there's lots of, of need. And Jesus said, the poor you have with you always. And, um, you know, it's not an excuse not to help. We're supposed to help. But I, I'm saying that we don't have a, it's okay to say no, too, because there has to be a line. We only have enough resources to, to help. And it's better to, to, to be limited and, and, and do a better job of those that God's put it on our heart to help. We let the Holy Spirit lead in that area. But we don't have a biblical responsibility to help. And you won't find it, really, in the Bible. You won't find it in the Bible, a precedence where, we have to get outside of the um, the church and the body of Christ in, in, in doing those benevolent things. This doesn't happen. So in verse number five, it says, and I hired counselors. Now, these weren't like psychologists. These are lawyers, right? And so they immediately, they hire counsel. You know, it's like a Jew to lawyer up. <laughs> all right. And they, they frustrated their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. Now, I want to tell you something about chapter 4. Now, chapter 4 to different kings and different times, and so there's a little bit of maybe jumping around, and some that studied a lot than I ever would have, have put this into, like, perspective of who these kings are and where this fits in, and this is kind of parenthetical because the timeline is not just laid out completely chronological between listed. I would just tell you, basically, it was Cyrus who gave the first king, and then you had and then you have two Xerxes. You have um, Xerxes, Xerxes Langemont, going to give Nehemiah the um, the command to Daniel to rebuild, go forth and rebuild. Artaxerxes Langemont is probably the most famous of the and so we and because he's the one that we tie the decree to for Daniel chapter nine prophecy, which is the greatest prophecy, is super important. So, um, but again, as we get through four, I'm not going to try to. Verse 6, it says, in the reign of Artaxerxes, oh, I'm sorry, Ahasuerus. So in our King James versions, or New King James versions, that Ahasuerus, that's Xerxes. So it's Xerxes' father, or Artaxerxes Longimanus' son, uh, is going to come up in the next verse. Beginning in the reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah, Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, a lot of people say that is the Artaxerxes of Longimanus. So we're, we're kind of jumping around kings. We went from Xerxes in verse 6 to his son in verse 7. Also, Bishlam, Mithrib, Tabel, the rest of the companies wrote, Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the letter was written in Aramaic scripture and translated in Aramaic language. And Rehum, the commander, listed here, 
from Rehum, the commander, Shishmai, the scribe, the companions, representatives of the Danites, the Bubla and the Terapites and the Meshmites and the Flashlights and the Sermites and the people of Persia and Erech and Babylon and Shushan and Devahavites and Elamites and whatever else the rest write. Uh, verse number 12 says, Let it be known. So, um, actually, this is for 11. It says, To the king Artaxerxes, from your servants, men of the region beyond the river, and so forth. I'm going to read some of this, but I'm just going to tell you basically what's going to happen is these Samaritans are coming. They, they ask, Can we help? They say no. They lawyer up. So they begin to draft letters that they're going to send back to Persia, where the ruling power is in Babylon. As we know, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire has been conquered by the Medo Persian Empire at this time. Cyrus was a king in, and they set up these, these kingdoms. Um, they set up their kingdom in Babylon again because Babylon was the greatest city the world has ever known, and so they're ruling from Persia, from the city of Babylon, and so they're sending letters now. They're drafting letters from the lawyers back to these cities. Now there arose a king who knew not Joseph, and so what, what's going to happen is Cyrus is not on the throne anymore. Who gave the original decree? They write these letters. They're going to go. They're going to check the records. And they're going to put a halt on the building. So this, this attack from the outside of the Samaritans is going to work. And it's going to put a temporary halt. Um, possibly 15 years that they stop the building um, of the, the temple during, because of this injunction. Because of what these lawyers are going to do here. Now, the, the, the lesson is always the same. This is what we've been trying to hopefully bring your attention to as we've gone through this. Is that you're going to face opposition, right? You're going to face opposition in your walk with Christ. You're going to face opposition if you're building the kingdom of God. And what are they doing? What is the purpose of Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel? What, what are they doing? They're literally building the house of God. And, and, and Zerubbabel is the builder, but um, Ezra is the, is the pastor. He's the leader. He's the Levite. He's the one who's going to institute worship and, and services and teaching the word and, and, and spiritual things back to the, to the practices of the temple. And so they're going to face opposition. And opposition comes from lots of different ways. You know, Satan first attacks from without. And then he attacks from within. And then, you know, and, and those attacks from within are much harder. You know, it's the people that you love and, and that you, you do life with that Satan sometimes will use to stab you in the back or to make things difficult. And, you know, again, these, this competition between the Samaritans and the Jews. And so they send this, let's look at verse 12. They send this letter, and this is what it says. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing it, its walls, and repairing the foundation. So they're, they're starting to see process and progress. And again, that's when they get involved. Now, again, lies, right? Is Jerusalem an evil city? No, it's not. It's the greatest city on, on, on planet Earth, the most spiritual city on planet Earth. It's God's city. Um, the Bible says of Jerusalem, it's the city of the great Woo! That, I mean, I wish Tooele was this, you know, well, we had a title like that, that the, the Bible would say Tooele. That's the city of Jesus, the city of the great king. But that's Jerusalem, the city of the great king. So it's hardly evil city. And in verse 13, it says, let it, be, let it now be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls completed, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom to the king. Treasury will be diminished. Lies, lies, just lies. A lawyer writing this. What do you expect, right? I'm going to get sued for that comment. Now, because we received support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, and you will find in the book of the records, and know this, 
that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to the kings and provinces, that they have incited sedition within the city, former times for which cause this city was destroyed, more lives. We inform the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls are completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. So the king gets the letter in verse 17. It says to Rehim, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, the rest of the companies who dwell in Samaria and to the remainder beyond the river, peace and so forth. I love that. Um, And then in verse 18, the letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before us. And I gave command and a search has been made and it was found that this city in former times has revolted against the kings and rebelled in sedition and have been fostered in it. There have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have King David, King Solomon, um, more kings than that, um, that that would be considered mighty kings in in the sight of the Lord, in the sight of the people. You know, the Assyrian army marched um, on Jerusalem, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers surrounding the city. And King Jehoshaphat prayed and and he spread out the letters and he, he prayed and he woke up the next morning and he looked over the wall at the Assyrian army and they were all dead. One angel of the Lord went through that night. I'm sure he had a good reputation, this King Jehoshaphat and other kings. And so there have been many great kings who have ruled over the region and beyond the river. And tax tribute and custom were paid to them and, and to give them command to make these men cease that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. So he's basically just saying, yeah, you're right. This, these are not, this, these people have the ability to rule and, and taxes have been paid to them and it's not just some people we don't have to worry about who we just let them do what they want. They've never been nothing. They'll never be nothing. He said, yeah, we checked the record and there, there's been great kings there and great powers and, and you're right, it is a threat. And he said, now give the commandment and make these men call, cease that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. Take heed now that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase in the herd of the kings? Now when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum, now again, it says Artaxerxes, but it feels like a flip, right? Because King Artaxerxes is the one who's going to give Nehemiah the commandment to go forth and rebuild the walls. And um, So again, there's there's multiple kings in play here. This is um, possibly a, a Artaxerxes, the, the, the father, because there was two of them. Um, the letter was read in verse 23, before Rehum, Shishai, the scribe, and the other companies, and they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews, and by force of arms, they made them to cease. And so now the attacks are not just by lawyers. Now they come and they're, they're armied up and they're weaponed up and they're stopping them. They're taking their tools. They're literally cutting the power to the power tools and, you know, stopping the work physically with the arms that they have. And, and sometimes, you know, again, the enemy is not, he'll, he'll do anything. And verse 24 it says, thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased. Somebody say, oh, no. Not good. And it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So again, there between verse 24 and chapter 5, verse 1, there's a 15-year gap that this was effective. This cease and desist order that came from Persia, from Babylon, it, 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 it was effective. And it stopped them, and the Jews stopped. And what they did was, we're going to find, is it, 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 it became, I want to be careful what I say here, it, it became a habit. And th- listen, this is what happens in church. Is it necessary or, you know, have you heard people say like, oh, you know, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Right? People say that all the time. Well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Usually it's an excuse, but maybe some well-meaning Christians, you know, feel that way. Um, you know, 
an obvious, the obvious answer is, well, no, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. The Bible says you don't go to church to get saved to be a Christian. But if you are a Christian, you should want to go to church. If you're close to Jesus, the Bible says, do not forsake the gathering of the brethren together, which is the custom of the heathen, especially as you see the last days approaching in Hebrews chapter 9. So it's disobedience to God's word. And if you're close to God and you're being obedient to the word, you'll, you should want to go to church. But, but the statement is true in that you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Now, okay, that's true. But again, if you are a Christian, you should want to go to church. And the Bible says so. Do not forsake the gathering of the brethren. Um, but what happens is, you know, even in all of our lives, and I, I've actually been there. One little small taste of it, just for a minute. Because I've, I've been in church as a believer and then as in Bible college and as a pastor. And, you know, and, and when, you, when you work for the church, you have to be there every Sunday for the church. But... Um, you know, you, you stop, you, you miss a week or two or something comes up and, and then it turns into a month. And what happens is you just start to get in a habit of, of not being in fellowship, you know. And I, I think here, I think the culture when I got here, and there was no church here when I got here, right? There was no, you know, I think for a lot of the people that we first started ministering to, which was new. They didn't have a church in town they wake up and go to at 10 o'clock. But it, it was the culture for a lot of years even was just like church was something like, if you woke up Sunday morning, like you didn't like make it a part of your routine, your life, like set an alarm, and get ready. It was like, oh, if I'm up and I'm feeling like it, I'll go to church on Sunday. And, and, and again, if we get it, we just get into habits and we can get out of the habit of being in church. It happened again. I've talked about it a ton and I'm not trying to, and that's why I said I want to be careful what I say because I don't want to point this at anybody or judge anybody, but well-meaning, good Christians who, like we all did, stopped coming to church for a season during coronavirus they, 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 they're not like going to other churches or mad at us, nothing. They're just not back. And lots of churches. You know, I was at a pastor's conference in Georgia um, about six, eight months ago when I was in Georgia, I think. And, and then a pastor's panel and a lot of the pastors, even eight months ago, were saying, yeah, about, they, they may be back to about 60%, some, you know, 70% of, of who was there before coronavirus started. And I would say that's very true of our church. But a lot of that is just, people got out of the habit. And then, and then you start doing other things and and then, it, and then it becomes more and more difficult to come back. We talked about that last week if somebody shows up after being gone for a long period of time and one of us says something dumb to them or something. But, you know, but it's habits and it's habits. And listen, you know, for Lydia, it was great. It was one of the blessings. Like Lydia was born into a, to a pastor family and she's been in church every Sunday of her life. So she's never known any different. You know, my kids are the same way. My, all my boys, you know, none of them are perfect by any stretch. And I pray that every one of them will want to serve the Lord on their own choice one day. But and today, but they have been in church every Sunday and every Wednesday of their lives. And, um, you know, and it, and it comes to a point where it's just what you do. It's just who you are. And Sundays don't become, oh, if I, if I wake up or I feel like it, and then I'll go. And, and if we, we start getting in habits, they can grow. And missing church can be a dangerous habit. And it's okay to miss church. You know, everybody needs to be gone and do things and things happen, life happens. There's no judgment and miss church, no big deal. It's okay. But just be careful that, that you, you notice that in the patterns where, where it becomes a habit. And that's what's happening here. That's why I'm talking about this. Because they stopped the building, and then it just, it was, it was kind of a pause at, be, at the beginning. And then it turned into 15 years for no reason. It turned into 15 years because they started doing other things on Sundays. They started doing other things during that time. And they started building their own houses. And they started working on their own projects. And God's going to show up in Haggai. That's why I want you to read Haggai in two chapters. And if I get a chance, I'll read a little bit of it tonight. But Haggai says, what are you guys doing? He's prophesying. He's saying, you guys have been spending all this time building your own houses, and yet the house of the Lord is sitting in waste. And he kind of spanks them a little bit. And he's like, it's time. Stop worrying about your own house and start building my house up. 
And, and sometimes, you know, life is that way. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. You'll love one and you'll hate the other. And, and so, you know, there's a balance. And, and again, I'm talking about balance here. I'm not talking about, you know, having to, everything you do and give is all only God and church. That's not what I'm saying. But there is a balance. And it's being a balance. And I say, look at your checkbook. Where do you spend your money? What are the things? Are you investing in the kingdom of God? Are you doing things with your money that are spiritual? Or is it all just to, to serve yourself and to serve your needs? And, you know, and how is God going to view that? Is that you spend all this time building your house while his house sits in, in waste? And, you know, you know, too, that God doesn't need your money either. That's not what it's about, right? So in verse um, chapter 5, and I'm going to finish 5 and 6 there, I promise. It says, so, so there's the verse 5 right there. So it says, the prophets, you forget what I told you, Haggai and Zechariah, right there. So the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, the prophets, they prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel who was over them. And Zerubbabel, the son of Sheliatel, Jeshua, blah, 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 began the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. So I love that. The prophets... The, the leadership, the pastors were doing it themselves. They were working. Um, they were actually in the building projects. And, you know, it's been a blessing. We uh, So much of the stuff that, that's been done around here, you know, I've led in it. I've worked in it. Or, you know, when I was we were building the children's ministry, there was a little less help around here. I did a lot of that work myself. And I, I did all the texture on the children's ministry. So if you start on one side, you can see where I started. And it got better as I went. But I tried to hire a guy, and he gave me one of those bids like, I don't have time to do this work, but if you want to pay me like a ridiculous amount of money, I'll, I'll do it. So the bid was just way, so I watched a YouTube video. Lori came and helped me, and uh, she was feeling sorry for me, and Lori would show up and help me, and neither one of us are uh, texture people, but we did it, you know, and we got it done, and, you know, and so that's what happened. Everybody pitched in, and the leadership here is pitching in, and they're going back to work. Zerubbabel, I'm sorry, um, Haggai, from the word of the Lord, and... Um, Zechariah, they begin to prophesy from the Lord, and they begin to challenge these guys. So read that that challenge that Haggai gives them, especially Haggai, and, and they respond, and they're like, "You're right." And so the Lord, um, and the and the, the building begins. You know, it's it's hard, right? It's hard to follow somebody who is who won't do it themselves. They'll give you an order, but they but be, won't follow the order themselves. You know, it's like how how do you these guys that you know these faith healers and all these guys who want jets and Lamborghinis and you know, they want, you know, one, one of the churches is in Africa. It's, it's, one of the, it's, they, they, it's one of the richest pastors, wealthiest pastors in the world. And his church is in Africa, and he's got one of the over-the-top churches, and thousands upon thousands upon thousands. And most of them are all poor people, and they come because they believe, and they do all that fake stuff where they, they fake heal people and raise people from the dead. And, but he lives an opulent, opulent lifestyle among them, and, and, and he encourages. They teach classes in their churches how... Um, people can take loans out so they can give the money to the church and pay pay to the church and they start um, they teach them how to start businesses so they can get business loans to give the money to the church and um, and it's like you won't do it yourself you know and you want to beware all right verse four says then accordingly we told them the names of the men who were constructing the building oh I'm sorry verse three the second part says who has commanded you or built this remember they asked Jesus Who's given you this authority? And that's kind of what they show up and they say, who's given you this authority to build this temple and finish this wall? And so we told them the name of the builders. In verse 5 it says, but the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, so they could not make them cease till a report um, could go to Darius. Then a written answer was, was returned concerning this matter. 
And so they, the eye of the Lord was upon them, and they were working apart from this injunction, and they just were there working without any you know, new injunction. They just did it. They just stepped up, and they, they began to do the work of the Lord because God had spoken to them. The eye of the Lord was on them. God was blessing them, and they didn't have these things. And so then a copy of a letter um, was sent. So th- this is, again, another letter. Basically, um, let's look at verse 8. It says, Let it be known to the king that we went out to the province of Judea and the temple of the great God, which is being built. I love it that they use these terms, the great God. And, and again, they're doing this on purpose because Darius would have um, worshipped multiple gods. And so they're challenging Darius's God, that the God of the Jews is, they call him the great God, the one and only God, that we serve the one living God. And so they're, they're using these these terms, which we think, you know, and, and it's good, right? It's talking about God, that they understand who God is. But more than that, in this letter, they're, they're challenging Darius with the wording, these, lo- these lawyers that put this stuff together. And it says, um, the great God, which is being built with heavy stones and timber and being laid in the walls and the work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Hey, this um, term there in verse 8, the term heavy stones there, do you guys have a margin in your, in your Bible with a letter there next to it? Does it say anything next to that in your margin? Next to verse 8? Heavy stones? What does it say after that? No, after that. That's one. What does 2 say? Stones of rolling. Do you guys see that in your margin? Stones of rolling. So that term there, the Hebrew term means stones of rolling. Oh, Brian, did you have that picture of the thing? So this is just interesting, fun. It's neither here nor there. But, you know, one of the things that's cool, and, and, and it really gets highlighted in Egypt, because in Egypt they did modern marvels of how they built the temple, and how, they, um, how they moved stones, and how they built those pyramids, and, you know, the math, and, the, and the, you know, we were Neanderthals before, and now, you know, but they did things without heavy machinery, without electricity, that we couldn't do still to this day, and we don't know how they did it. You know, and this is one of the, this is, this is a picture of the actual Western Wall. It's the only thing that's left from the time of Jesus. This is what Zerubbabel, or I'm sorry, Nehemiah would have built, this wall. Um, this, this stuff was being um, constructed during this time where we're reading. Um, so the rest of it was was thrown down. Um, but it's hard to see. I don't know how much of that you guys can see, but it, if you look in the bottom, like these stones are massive. They're massive, massive, massive stones. And you can see the people there, imagine the people are six feet, how tall that that wall goes. Again, that's original wall. How about the fallen stones? Um, yeah, it's okay. Well, there's another picture um, of just the stones. So one of the theories is this word here means rolling stone. So one of the ideas is that these massive stones, the way they did this, and who knows, but the way they did this was they would roll, the stones were round, and they would roll them to move them into place. They would, they would, um, what do you call it, quarry, not quarry, what's the word, chisel, um, clean, whatever, flatten one side so that when it rolled up, it would land flat, then you'd have the flat sides touching, you could start with the bottom one square, you roll it on top, and then you chisel it square, and then you roll the next one on top, flatten one side, measure it so that it rolls and it lands flat, and then you carve the rest of it around, um, how they did it, um, so... Anyway, it's just an interesting thing, you know, and, and I, th- I thought it was cool because you, you hear a lot of that stuff like with Egyptian marvels of times how they built the pyramids, and you don't hear a lot of it about Israel, but the same thing was going on here, you know, this happened all over the temple and all these things, how did they, how did they get, I mean, even 20 feet up, how do you get a stone that weighs 
20 tons without modern technology, without cranes and stuff. So anyways, that's one of the ideas. This word rolling stone there is one of the ideas. So, and again, just to tell you that everything that you hear that you think that the world came up with these ideas came from your Bible. It all came from your Bible. The term you demand now, dog, that comes from your Bible. Everything comes from your Bible. Rolling stone? No. You didn't invent that. You ain't some cool rolling stone, you know, drifting where you go, head is where you lay your head, home is where you lay your head at and all that stuff, you know, you're stoned when you get there. No. That term is in the Bible. God invented it. So anyways, they were diligently working, they were prospering, and then it says, um, and we asked the elders, this is the letter they're writing back again now to, to the king to try to get him to stop once again, and spoke to them, who commanded us to build this temple and finish these walls? Hey, let me just skip, we're getting out of time. So um, let's go to the response. So it's more stuff, just telling them what they did. Um, the God of heaven, the great king in verse 11. Um, and then in chapter 6, King Darius issued a decree and a search was made in the archives where the treasures were, sh- were stored in Babylon. And as Mitha in the palace was a province of Media, scroll was found and in it a record was thus. So um, basically um, Cyrus says we checked it out. We found the, the record. Um, verse 4 it says with these rows of heavy stones. There's that's again the rolling stones there in verse 4 of chapter 6. And also the gold and the silvers of the article which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple, which is in Jerusalem, and brought him back to the temple. And then he says, Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the region beyond the river, this is what the king says in verse 6, and your companions and Persians who are beyond the river, keep yourself far from there. So it's going to backfire. It's a typical God story. They write this letter, and the king is going to write back, and he's going to say, um, the first time it worked, and they got the injunctions. This time... Um, this king responds very differently. And not only is he going to say, leave him alone, stay far from there. Look what he says. Moreover, I also decree as what you shall do for the elders of the Jews for the building of the house of God. Let the cost be paid by you and the expense from the taxes of the region beyond the river. This is to be given immediately to these men. So they are not hindered. And whatever they need, young bulls, rams, lambs, of the burnt offering of the um, to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, oil, according to the request of the priests, who are in Jerusalem, let it be given to them day by day. So not only are they going to continue to bring, but you're going to pay for it. And then look what it says in verse number 11. It says, oh no, in verse number 13, when they get the letter. Oh, let, let's, let's finish 11 and 12. It says, also the decree that whoever alters the edict, listen to what he said, let a timber be pulled from his house and erected and let him be hanged on it. And let his house be made a refuge heap or dung heap. Because of this. So he's not messing around. So if you don't do this, we're going to tear your house down. And we're going to take a beam from your house and we're going to hang you on it. And then we're going to turn your house into a, a dunghill. And that must have been a thing in Persia, in Babylon. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar when we were studying that? He was constantly threatening you with taking your house and turning it into a dunghill. And so that's what this And then it says, And may the God who causes his name to dwell there destroy the king or people who put their hand to alter it or to destroy this house of God let it be done immediately or diligently. And the governor of the region, in verse 13, beyond the river, Bonsai and their companions, diligently did according to what King Darius had said, the bad attitude. Can you imagine getting this letter and being like, oh! Like how, he wouldn't have been like happy about this, right? 
But it was it was the same story. We see it repeated in the Bible. We're going to see it when we get to Esther in, in a couple of weeks, right? When we study Esther, the whole story of Esther was King Haman made gallows that he was going to hang all the Jews on. And then King Esther, uh, Queen Esther saves the day. And through the providence of God, um, Haman and all his guys are hung on those gallows. So the very gallows they created to kill the Jews, God used to hang them. And on and on and on. The Bible says that the, 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 the wealth of the wicked is stored for the righteous. And so God uses it, and, and, and that's what he does here. It's kind of pretty cool stuff. Um, look at verse 16, and it says, Then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of captivity celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Look at verse 22. It says, And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days Verse 22, and they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord made them and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them and to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Tewilla. The God of who? Israel. I constantly remind you guys, this is the God of Israel. He loves Israel still to this day. And he'll always be the God of Israel. Not that he's not our God and doesn't love us the same, but he's the God of Israel. And, and I, I had you read the word joy three times there. Because, again, this is a, another constant reminder of mine. If, oh, there we go. Um, Brian and I, when we were in Israel, we actually got to see this. The first time um, I, I remember getting to see it. But um, these are the actual stones that were thrown off the temple by the Roman soldiers when um, in AD 70 when they destroyed the temple. So this area has been, um, I can't say recently excavated, probably in the last 20 years, 15 years, um, but it was underground for a lot of years. When I was in Israel in 98, this didn't exist. It was all underground. And they, um, they, they've, they've dug down and they found the actual stones that were that that were throne and right above this we're looking up is temple mount that's where the dome of the rock is and all those things where solomon's temple was and jesus said not one stone would be left upon another the gold the temple was 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 covered in gold they set it on fire the gold melted in the cracks of the rocks and so all the all the roman soldiers were were throwing the rocks over so they could get to the next layer of gold and they were they were stealing the gold this is the actual stones that that were built from the temple but again you can see the size of them and how they moved them, and, and even the Roman soldiers, I guess, big pry bars and lots of people, and they were able to push them off the side. But those were um, the actual stones that were being built in the temple, and maybe they were at one point rolling stones. Those are the real rolling stones. They're getting shaggy in their ponies. Um, a 60-year gap between chapter 6 and 7. We're going to pick up next week. We'll finish the book next week of Ezra. Um, please read... Um, Especially Haggai, if you want to labor through Zechariah, you can. It's got, it's good. You got to kind of pick the the parts of Zechariah that are specific for where we are in Ezra. But Haggai, you don't have to do that. You will know immediately that this is talking to Zerubbabel and the men as they stopped in that 15-year gap. These prophets show up and they give a word from the Lord that it's time to begin rebuilding. It's really uh, it's encouraging and convicting too as you read Haggai in the context of this and the Lord saying, "Why have you stopped building my house?" You're building your house, and my house sits in ruins. And it's just encouraging to, for me to want to build the house of the Lord and, and be about my Father's business. Amen?
Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for your word, God. We thank you for history that, that's true and that reveals your truth. And um, Lord, we, we pray that we would uh, just have changed lives as we study your word, that our faith would grow because the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And Lord, that these stories and these events that are true events that would grow in our faith. And when we face something in this life where we're forced to trust you and we're afraid, that our faith would be strengthened and our faith would endure because our faith would be in you, a big God who we've seen do amazing miracles and, and who, who, who rebuilt the temple in spite of the distractions. And not only that, you made the enemies of, of the work pay for it. And so, Lord, we, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You will have opposition, but God will come through. Amen?